Hello, and welcome to United for Peace, episode 2.3, A Questionable Start. Last time, I said we were going to finally see some on-the-ground action, but also that we would tackle some questions concerning the legality of the General Assembly authorizing an armed mission. So, in order to end on a more exciting note, I am going to begin with the legal questions. Strap in. First of all, funnily enough, the resolutions which created the first United Nations Emergency Force contained no references whatsoever to its legal basis. But of course, the plan was not without controversy, and so there were critics and people defending against those critics. The obvious criticism is that only the Security Council should be able to authorize armed responses to breaches of the peace. Article 24, under Chapter 5 of the United Nations Charter, grants the Security Council primary responsibility for the maintenance of international peace and security. The specific powers enabling the Council are laid out in Chapters 6, 7, and 12 of the Charter. However, the General Assembly has a share of the responsibility as well. Articles 10 and 11 under Chapter 4 of the UN Charter give the Assembly essentially a free hand in discussing and considering threats to international peace and security, and for making recommendations on how to subdue any such threat. Furthermore, Article 14 of the same chapter states that the General Assembly may quote, recommend measures for the peaceful adjustment of any situation, regardless of origin, which it deems likely to impair the general welfare or friendly relations among nations, including situations resulting from a violation of the provisions of the present charter setting forth the purposes and principles of the United Nations. End quote. An astute listener may catch in there that this article provides for the recommendation of peaceful adjustments of any situation, so it is still doubtful whether it can recommend any armed mission. But the view that the General Assembly may assume responsibility for collective action in defense of international peace and security in the event of Security Council deadlock was iterated in our good friend, the Uniting for Peace Resolution, General Assembly Resolution 377. Again, this resolution allowed the General Assembly, in fact it still allows the General Assembly, to meet an emergency special session and issue recommendations to members for collective measures, including the use of force if necessary, in the case of a breach to the peace or an act of aggression. So, while the Charter does not give the General Assembly explicit permission to recommend any use of arms, it does not expressly forbid it, and an overwhelmingly approved General Assembly resolution establishes its right to do so. The resolution asserts quote-unquote residual responsibility for international peace and security, with the Security Council retaining primary responsibility as explicitly stated in those exact words in the Charter. Essentially, the General Assembly claimed the right to act with the reservation that its decisions cannot be binding in the same way the Security Councils are, 
if the Security Council fails to live up to its responsibilities. On that note, I did say during our series on Onuk that an emergency special session carries with it the same binding authority that the Security Council does, which is not true. Sorry about that. I got that in my head mistakenly all the way back in high school when I first started doing Model UN, and somehow did not see any contradiction until recently, nor considered the implications that would have on the Charter as a whole. Moving on, now that we've covered the legal argument for the General Assembly's right to recommend an armed force, let's talk about the General Assembly's right to wield such a force or not. After all, recommending the use of force may have been assumed before to mean recommending sovereign states use force, rather than the General Assembly using it. Secretary General Hammerschild argued that the UNEF could be considered as a quote-unquote subsidiary organ of the General Assembly in accordance with Article 22 of the Charter. Article 22 allows the General Assembly to create quote, such subsidiary organs as it deems necessary for the performance of its functions, end quote. Since Articles 10, 11, and 14 gave the General Assembly responsibility for recommending measures for the peaceful adjustment of situations, discussing breaches of the peace, etc., Article 22 would solidly justify the General Assembly creating an emergency force as a subsidiary body so long as it adjusts a given situation peacefully in accordance with Article 14. Setting aside how an armed force is supposed to be used for peacefully adjusting any given situation, the logic of the above justification does depend on the subsidiary responsibility argument of Resolution 377 panning out. Despite the overwhelming support for Resolution 377 when it was passed, this argument itself still received its own criticism. Nonetheless, let us now concisely state the argument for the UNEF's legality. Quote-unquote, concisely. Essentially, the force is being created by the mere recommendation of the General Assembly, the Secretary General's acting on that recommendation, and the member states of the UN simply agreeing voluntarily to put together such a force and consenting to its deployment. Regardless, it was tasked with securing compliance with General Assembly resolutions, which might be a problem since the General Assembly's resolutions are not legally binding. Therefore, the GA creating any body to enforce compliance with its resolutions would exceed its authority. Now, securing and enforcing compliance are not the same thing necessarily, however. Securing simply implies doing something, anything, to affect a desired change. This could mean simply entering negotiations and making promises to do certain things and to address other parties' concerns. But as critics pointed out, there is a thin line between securing and enforcing compliance considering how broad the term securing is. This is especially true 
when you are making an armed force to secure whatever it is you are after. This criticism falls apart, however, in the wake of the fact that the whole operation was planned and executed on the basis of gaining the consent of all relevant parties. The UNEF never did fire a shot in anger, and never entered any territory without permission of all parties concerned. The members of the UN had consented to the creation and arrangement of the force, Egypt had consented to hosting the force, and those invading Egypt agreed to withdraw their troops from Egyptian territory. No enforcement action was ever taken by the UNEF's soldiers, and, spoiler, the force's mission only ends when confronted with a situation in which they do not have consent from all relevant parties to carry on. Then, we also have every loose constructionist's favorite argument laid out by the World Court as well, delivered in the opinion on reparations for injuries suffered in the service of the United Nations, quote, Under international law, the organization must be deemed to have those powers which, though not expressly provided in the Charter, are conferred upon it by necessary implication as being established to the performance of its duties, end quote. Finally, no state voted against the creation of the force by the General Assembly. There were abstentions, but literally no one voted against it, so whether or not it was technically within the Assembly's purview, the global community clearly was in favor of moving forward with the force. That said, the Soviet Union's delegate, V.V. Kuznetsov, voiced the opinion that it was an illegal act and effectively caved to British and French demands to keep their troops in Egypt until the UN had assembled a military force. He also argued that it would place all territory previously occupied by Anglo-French forces, including the Suez Canal, under international control, which was what the European powers wanted in the first place. This was not the case, however, as we shall see in a moment. However, I want to keep hammering home the fact that the General Assembly did not engage in any enforcement and did not compel any participation whatsoever in the plan for UNEF. Another example of how the General Assembly and Secretary General ran the mission on the basis of consent from involved nations is that each state contributing to the UNEF set its own conditions for participation, which was entirely voluntary. Each contributing nation sent letters and memoranda to Hammerschild outlining the conditions and basis for their participation. Hammerschild, responding to these letters, wrote, quote, It is the intent that this letter, together with your reply accepting the proposals set forth, shall constitute an agreement. It is also intended that it shall remain in force until such time as your national contingent may be withdrawn from the force. End quote. For reasons like this, the UN actually saves letters and copies of letters for its public records, and you can find and view them for free at digitallibrary.un.org. It is a fantastic resource, 
and helps me a whole lot in producing this show. So, the General Assembly made agreements with belligerents to deploy the force in order to separate them and facilitate the withdrawal of all foreign forces from Egypt and did not compel any nation to participate under any circumstances. So once more, no enforcement action took place, making the case for the illegality of the force extremely weak. Shout out to Gabriella Rosner for providing such an excellent breakdown of the arguments for and against the legality of the force. Now, the legal basis of the mission is all laid out, but since so many people believe the UN is some sort of quasi-world government hell-bent on undermining the sovereignty of independent states, I want to address one more aspect of UNEF's deployment. The majority of member states were of the opinion that the consent of the UK, France, and Israel was not necessary since they had initiated hostilities in the first place in direct violation of the UN Charter. As well as this, since all armed forces in question were on legally Egyptian soil, Egypt is technically the only nation whose approval was needed for troops under UN auspices to deploy. This opinion was not unanimous, but it was prevalent. Nonetheless, Dag Hammarskjöld and the General Assembly pursued an agreement with these three states in the interest of securing peace as quickly and thoroughly as possible. It's all about peace. It always has been. In any case, the UNEF was not a particularly powerful force and hardly could have affected any meaningful change in the territorial situation if Israel, the UK, or France refused to withdraw in its wake. That is not to say that a force capable of that couldn't have been created, but it is not what the UN created. Despite scruples around its inception, the UNEF was an accepted organ of the General Assembly by 1963. It truly was the first entity ever that was more than a simple observer corps, but not actually a military force temporarily controlling the territory it sat on. Its task boiled down to this, re-establishing the legal conditions and political balance which existed before the Anglo-French-Israeli invasion of Egypt. Particularly, it was repeatedly stressed that the force would not be used to alter the military balance in the conflict. Doing so would be politically charged, but in order to remain legal and legitimate, the force had to remain politically neutral. How do you square these contradictions? That's right, by getting the consent of any state concerned when taking any action. Its normal duties consisted of ensuring orderly withdrawals of foreign armies from Egyptian territory, seeing to it that hostilities ceased, supervising the ceasefire, patrolling border areas to prevent commando raids, and overseeing the absolute observance of the 1949 Armistice Agreement. While many states sought to eliminate some of the sources of tension in the first place using the emergency force, it would have been contrary to the General Assembly's rights and powers as expressed in the Charter to do so. Again, being created by recommendation of the General Assembly, rather than a decision of the Security Council, 
it lacked authority to engage in enforcement actions. Furthermore, the resolutions providing for the creation of the UNEF did not provide any basis or mandate for it doing so. The warring states themselves would have to settle their differences between themselves, using diplomacy rather than bullets. One example of the political neutrality of UNEF is its refusal to become the sole occupiers of the Suez Canal Zone until a political settlement was reached regarding its ownership and operation, as the UK and France requested before pulling their own forces out. UNEF refused this request upon the protest of the Egyptian government. Whether or not it would have accepted this request in the first place is questionable, but again, the UNEF's purpose was to re-establish the legal conditions and political balance existing before the opening of hostilities. So, for UNEF to consider its goal fulfilled, Egypt had to operate the Suez, all foreign troops had to be out of the country, etc., etc. At midnight, November 6th, the ceasefire came into effect. On November 15th, UNEF forces entered Port Said, the city at the northern end of the Suez Canal. However, where the UNEF went, Anglo-French forces did not withdraw right away, and Israel was even more stubborn about withdrawing, as we shall see. On November 23rd, the UK's delegate to the UN told the General Assembly that they are willing to withdraw their troops as soon as the UNEF becomes, quote, effective and competent to discharge its functions, end quote. France's delegate said essentially the same thing the following day. Israel's delegate quoted Mr. Pearson, the Canadian foreign affairs minister who masterminded UNEF, if you recall, saying there is, quote, a relationship between withdrawal of the forces and the arrival and functioning of the United Nations force, end quote. This was met by much protest, as they were essentially setting their own prerequisite for withdrawal. The United Nations had agreed that the status quo antebellum had to be restored. However, there was not actually much that UNEF could do about it not being a proper military force again. Nonetheless, it didn't take long for the UK and France to recognize the effectiveness and competency of the UNEF. Both powers declared publicly on December 3rd, just over a week later, that they believed an effective police force was entering Egypt. They instructed Allied Commander General Kitely to begin negotiations with UNEF regarding the timetable for withdrawal. Now, a lot of people get the impression that setting timetables for parties to execute necessary things like this are asinine. After all, Shouldn't the invaders simply pull forces out right away when required to do so, especially when there is another armed entity coming in capable of taking over their duties? Well, when you have literally tens of thousands of soldiers in an area, along with supplies and heavy equipment, it takes a long time to facilitate a safe, orderly withdrawal. An instant withdrawal of forces is fine on paper, but in the physical world, such large tasks are, well, difficult and complex. Besides this, 
Even when an entity capable of taking over certain duties from another is around, those duties can be very easily overlooked or neglected here or there if the two do not communicate when and where certain personnel will or will not be active. Also, there are things that any country would want settled before withdrawing from another nation or having another withdraw from their territory. This includes things like exchanging prisoners, mostly. So, to keep things organized and safe and thorough, it is just best to schedule things in orderly increments. Also, not to make it seem too much like the British and French were simply cooperating with the UN in good faith, let's quickly address the fact that the United States threatened to tank the value of the pound sterling by selling its pound-valued treasury bonds. Furthermore, Saudi Arabia initiated an oil embargo against France and the UK after their invasion of Egypt, and the United States refused to supply the difference between normal and post-embargo imports for either of them. So essentially, the economies and energy supplies of the UK and France were both seriously jeopardized by the Arab and American responses to the invasion, which put a lot more pressure on them to end the operation. Having said all that, Anglo-French troops made their final withdrawal from the Suez Canal area on December 22nd. UNEF soldiers acted as a shield between them and Egyptian forces, patrolled the streets of Port Said and Port Fouad, another city literally adjacent to Port Said, to ensure peaceful relations between troops and civilians, and maintained a safety cordon around invading forces in the final stages of withdrawal, when they would be most vulnerable otherwise. All the while, the force arranged and supervised prisoner exchanges between Egypt and the Anglo-French command. Then, there aren't many big events taking place during the course of the operation for a while. The UNEF investigated complaints of ceasefire violations, smuggling, and missing personnel. The force guarded British and French ships working on salvage operations in the canal. They trucked food supplies, set up checkpoints, looked for stray mines, and transported money into occupied areas so things could get going as normal again. They also took over administration of public utilities, finance, communications, fuel and food distribution, legal affairs, safety, health, and damage claims from the British and French, then turned them back over to Egyptian authorities when such authorities were ready. Overall, the whole affair went extremely smoothly at this time. The UNEF undertook similar activities in the Sinai Peninsula when overseeing Israel's withdrawal from the territory between December 1956 and March 1957. We will talk about that in detail next episode. The UN also took it upon itself to clear the canal of sunken ships and debris from destroyed bridges. The Secretary General's acceptance of this responsibility was publicly noted on December 3rd. Hammershield also stated that quote-unquote free and secure transit would be re-established after the canal was cleared. So there you have it. There were no hot engagements, but the UNEF has been created and deployed, and it has engaged in serious police action. 
and it did it all with the power of consensus building and the consent of nations concerned. Next time, we will discuss the composition of the force and details of its advance into previously illegally occupied Egyptian territory, and most especially, Israel's stubborn resistance to full withdrawal. Thank you all for listening. Join me next time on United for Peace as we wade through yet more murky waters of Middle Eastern politics. <laughs>